You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. This week, we're joined by Johanna Stavitz, also known as Joey, who is an assistant professor at the practice in Vanderbilt University's Department of Special Education. Joey's experience as a former special ed teacher and school-based behavior analyst guides her approach to practitioner preparation and scientific inquiry. She's also a researcher who focuses on adapting and evaluating intervention procedures to support the social, emotional, and academic skills of children with emotional and behavioral disorders in special education settings. Today, we'll be discussing adapting assessment and intervention procedures for children with emotional and behavioral disorders. Joey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Well, it's it's my pleasure to have you on because oftentimes we're talking and, and blending in autism to a lot of the discussion, but the show itself is about inclusion. The show itself is about kind of creating these bridges to understand that a lot of the, the intervention, a lot of the support, a lot of the services actually blend across diagnostic categories. And this is a really good conversation to have because I think a lot of our children, no matter what their diagnostic uh, profile might tell us, are going to benefit from each of these procedures that we're going to talk about. Before we go there, do you mind just giving us a little bit of a background about you know, what led you to your interest in emotional and behavioral disorders and the passion that's guiding some of the research right now? Sure. So you mentioned that, you know, I have experience in the classroom as a special ed teacher um, and also as a school-based behavior consultant. And in, in those roles, I worked with kids with a variety of diagnoses and educational labels, um, including behavioral disorders. And um, that work was challenging both in the classroom and across classrooms as a consultant, just because of the diverse needs of the students that needed support. And so, you know, while I got a lot of practice individualizing assessment and instruction to fit the needs of individuals, um, and, you know, in the classroom, especially as a teacher, balancing the need to instruct students on their instructional level with the need to address grade level standards, um, uh, you know, I, I had a lot of questions left <laughs> to be answered after after working on that and, and doing it um, to the best of my ability and, and using evidence-based practices that are out there. Um, I also, you know, found it to be challenging and in a healthy way. It was delightful, but challenging to manage the behavior of a classroom full of high schoolers in a big urban school district. Um, and that really taught me quickly to learn what students care about, help them understand what I care about as it relates to learning and kind of find the intersection between those things and, and share decision making with them whenever possible. Um, you know, and of course, bring a sense of humor to it all. Um, and then as a behavior analyst, you know, there, there were similar themes that arose. You know, I had to individualize not only for the students, but also for the adults through whom I was working. You know, I was supporting teachers and, and training them, and they need to be approached in different ways to learn their best um, and to really understand the purpose of using any of the techniques I was training them to use. Um, so it's it's just kind of like relationships kept coming to the fore as being very important um, in addition to just our our behavior analytic procedures. So um, those are some things that I was 
thinking about as I decided to go ahead and pursue some training to become a researcher and become someone who trains individuals to work in those settings. I wanted to, I wanted answers to questions about like, how do we, we've got some good procedures here, but how do we actually equip teachers to use them? And also teachers have a lot on their plates. What are some things we can do with kids that are gonna give them skills that will transfer to take some of the burden off the teacher? What can we do as behavior analysts through direct service um, and in our systems? So that's sort of how, how I ended up back at Vanderbilt for a PhD and during my program, continued to specialize in EBD and intervention. And then since then have been doing the work you mentioned that I imagine we'll spend the rest of the conversation discussing. Yeah, I mean, uh, the fact that you were able to kind of have the experience of working from adolescence through adulthood, you were able to take those perspectives probably guides a lot onto some of the techniques that were hopefully starting to apply across the age span. Um, I think historically is that we we've always treated adolescents and adults different than children. And I would I would question why, um, because everybody should be valued. Everybody should be empowered. We should be thinking priorities based off of regardless of the individual, what is important for them at any given moment. But we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the investigations and research you've done. And maybe we can kind of hit a little kind of bit by bit on this and and start with the idea of kind of the enhanced choice models because this should be global everybody should be engaging in this but i don't know that everybody knows how to get there so maybe give us a little bit of flavor of you know what is the enhanced choice model how does that work and then how do we start to apply that yeah absolutely and also i just want to put a pin in, in something you said about um considering what's important to anyone in a given moment, because that's something that I want to talk more about, and I think it'll come up later, but I really love that you said that, and that relates to some things I'm thinking about um, that may come up with ECM, but will certainly come up at some point. But with Enhanced Choice Model or ECM, as I will, I, I will try not to abbreviate, but I know I'll end up doing it. That's what I'm talking about when I do. Um, that is a framework for delivering intervention. So, um, for example, if the intervention involves teaching a child to use com communication and other skills instead of dangerous behavior um, or behaviors that kind of show dangerous behaviors coming if you don't, you know, take care of my needs right now. Um, so if that's the intervention, enhanced choice model is a framework. And so what I mean by that is that it has a couple features that sort of get layered over and the intervention fits within it. And I and, you know, I've. My research on enhanced choice involves a specific intervention called skill-based treatment, and the only two published studies on enhanced choice model involve that intervention, but I'll just come right out and say that, yeah, we can use this model and substitute any intervention in there. There's really no need that it has to be skill-based treatment. Um, and I see classrooms using something very similar to this um, very often, and so I, I like that sign that you know some of these values are starting to trickle out. But essentially, in this framework, students have choices, or children have choices. This doesn't have to be done in a school or in a classroom. It can be done in other settings as well, clinics, homes, um, and both clinics and schools have showed up in the research so far. But this would uh, work the same way, although look a little different in different settings. But it's about choice. Choice is also just a really great little intervention of itself. It's so low effort and easy and can really diffuse tension if you offer a child a choice. 
ah, we're having a banana for a snack. Do you want it? Um, do you want to peel it yourself or should I peel it for you? Do you want it cut up or do you want to eat it like a monkey? You know, like these little things matter, but choice also matters on a larger scale. Um, and really in the largest way possible, I think, um, when it comes to enhanced choice, because we're saying you can choose to participate in the intervention, but you can choose not to participate at all. And that's really fundamentally different from the way we've historically approached intervention in ABA. We usually say this is the treatment and you're coming in and you will receive it. And ideally, the treatment is pleasant enough that children cooperate with that. But there have been plenty of times where we've had to require children to come in and participate in intervention. And um, and that, you know, that's not pleasant for them. Autonomy is very important. And when when our physical autonomy in particular is infringed upon, we have an emotional response that is that is natural and that has kept us alive as humans across generations. Um, we know we can defend ourselves best if we're free to do it. And so when people start to infringe on that autonomy, it elicits some some internal experiences um, and evokes some thinking, too, that that can be unpleasant. OK, so first of all, ECM requires choice between I'm participating in this intervention or I'm not. Um, and that doesn't have to be a one time choice. That choice can be made even during the intervention session. So kids can choose whether to participate. In addition to that, they can choose how to participate. So let's say that one option is just, you know, going back to whatever you would have been doing if you weren't practicing your skills with me today. Um, but the other is within this room where we're practicing your skills, you have two choices. You can kind of do it my way as the adult, which is going to involve um, using your skills and then having uh, access to, you know, a, a, a situation that you really enjoy. Um, but you have to use your skills to get that. And that's the intervention part. But you can also choose to go into this other area and just have access to a really great situation without having to work for it. So there's the choice whether to participate. Then there's the choice to kind of access all your most preferred activities um, through learning, through practicing your skills or accessing them freely which is a pretty radical idea and you know I'm, we're not the only folks doing it this shows up in other ways like synchronous reinforcement other intervention approaches in the literature um, but that's the enhanced choice model there are these options you can leave and not participate you can participate fully or you can simply access some variation on the reinforcement that would be available within practicing your skills but you can have it for free uh, in addition, um, no no physical guidance within the enhanced choice model. I think that's a really important addition. So the choices are there, and also we're we're not going to physically guide you even within the um, context of intervention where we're requiring you to use your skills to get access to super awesome fun time. Um, With that, Joey, I, and and I. I just want to get back to the the idea that you had claimed, or not claimed, but stated that this is relatively radical. I mean, when something is labeled as radical in our field, obviously, is that there's all these assumptions of, well, this can't work because of A, or this won't work because of B. And I would imagine that people are saying, well, if you never require somebody to be a part of a learning environment, they're never going to choose it. What are you finding through this process, just even in setting up your the kind of really working through enhanced choice model and modifying the environment and creating a space where somebody wants to be a participant? What are you seeing in the research? 
are people being proved right with that assumption or are they is there something different what a great question and i'm um imagine you do you you've seen these data it's amazing so keep in mind that the kids who are participating in these studies were referred for really severe and dangerous behavior which is why we're involved and why we're trying something really different um and uh, you know it's upwards of 95 90, not 95 i shouldn't say that it's uh the average amount of time kids spend in intervention versus those alternatives is above 85% of the time. So even with kids who are highly, highly avoidant of work, of classroom demands, for example, or, or other tasks, um, and avoidant of time without access to, to the stuff they like and the people they like, those kids are choosing to participate in practice and in intervention, which is wild. I mean, I was honestly personally surprised. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if you want to hear a quick little story, you know, this for me, this all started when we'd learned about um, practical functional assessment, skill based treatment, when Greg Hanley came to the Tennessee ABBA conference in maybe 2015, 2014, something like that and had sort of stayed in touch and were asking for some help. And he actually very generously hooked us up with one of his doc students at the time, Ditu Rajaraman, now Dr. Ditu Rajaraman. And uh, Ditu was supporting us in some of these case applications with children with EBD. And with our very first client, um, we couldn't use physical guidance in the school where we were working and things were just kind of going off the rails once once we were requiring the child to do some work that was really challenging. So we were asking Ditu what to do and he said, oh, you can try this new thing we're doing. And it turned out to be the enhanced choice model. And I'm just going to tell you as a behavior analyst, I thought it was absolutely insane <laughs> and I just didn't get it. And I kept kind of like rooting for the kid not to go into the alternative space with all the, um, the fun activities in it. Um, and then I learned over time that it, to celebrate when students went ahead and made that choice. Um, but I just remember Ditchie saying, okay, he likes playing basketball in the intervention context. You need a basketball hoop in the hangout, the, the context where he can have that stuff for free. And I thought, but if we make it the same, he's gonna spend all his time hanging out and enjoying the rewards and not learning the skills. And that just didn't turn out to be true for that child or the many, many, many children who have come since then. I know, it's, it's amazing what happens when we take kind of the assumptions and test them and how natural and I'd, I'd say, I don't want to say the word humane, but empowering, I guess, would be the word that I'd put in there, that you can create these environments where somebody is wanting to learn, wanting to acquire different skills to be able to enhance their their ability to access new environments. And would it would it be a reach to say that, you know, I have somebody that I'm forcing into treatment 100% of the time. They're probably not wanting to learn 100% of that time that they're in there is that that person that's choosing 85% of the time is likely to make more rapid gains in some of their treatment because they're ready participants, they want to be a part of it, and they want to learn. Are you seeing some of the changes in the treatment outcomes from this process? You know, there haven't been any direct comparisons yet, but I will say that what you're describing really, um, I think, is the right hypothesis and the way the, the mechanism through which I think offering those choices is actually supporting learning is just that 
if they didn't have the choice, what would that session have looked like? Well, that choice, choosing to go into Hangout and play with my stuff for free instead of working for it, is a replacement. It's another alternative to problem behavior. So if they don't want to do what I'm asking them to, if I don't give the option to do something else, then they're going to fight it in another way. And we're not going to get very much done. And not only that, we're going to do damage to the, the student-teacher relationship. And that's going to impact engagement over the long term because relationships are absolutely critical, although we don't usually talk as much about that that aspect of treatment in ABA as I think we need to. And I think that's changing. Um, but that's that's another part of offering this choice and, and whether kids might benefit more from a treatment embedded within a choice model um, is that the, it facilitates trust toward the adult. Um, and like you pointed out, in the sessions in which they have chosen to participate, that's we're going to get the best from them. Um, and we wouldn't get much from them if we were not allowing that choice on days that they wouldn't have chosen to do it. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I would, I would imagine our training historically prior to seven, eight years ago was very similar is that we both have been in the field long enough to see some of these changes shape over time. I, I think it might be nice for the listeners just to kind of understand, you know, the polarity of difference of treatment environments that we maybe have gone over time to what you're describing now. What you're describing now is, you know, people are walking in almost like in a work situation where I'm choosing to be there. I want yeah. to work for this organization. I want to work for this job. And I'm bought into the process. So even if there is a challenging event in my day, I'm bought into the culture. I'm bought into what I'm wanting to do. And I'm going to work with my team to get through that. That wasn't the thought process with treating children and, and almost kind of their willingness to be a part of the treatment setting. What did it look like historically? Just to kind of draw maybe a little bit of the discrepancy of where we're going in the field to where maybe we started and we're learning from. Yeah. And I, I mean, I guess I can give sort of the most extreme contrast, but I want to say this isn't what every treatment looked like, but um you know, historically, we would do a functional analysis, figure out what what the reinforcer for the behavior that needs to change because it's dangerous is. And then we make sure that that is not available until the learner uh, demonstrates a more socially appropriate alternative behavior, like asking nicely for the thing or just asking for the thing or communicating through um, picture exchange or any means of communication instead of self-injury or um, aggression toward others or really Im important behaviors. So and, and so I don't want to make it sound like I don't don't appreciate the value in this approach that that preceded the one we have now. It it was really important and it helped kids a lot. But here's the deal: so kids had to learn to communicate what they wanted, um, and gosh darn it, we're not going to let you have that reinforcer until you do so. And that was really important because. Um, it's really the what a behavior produces that controls whether we see that behavior. So making sure that dangerous behavior no longer produces the thing, um, access to an iPad, let's say, just for sake of an example, um, means that we won't see as much dangerous behavior. And if at the same time we're providing the iPad contingent on the request, whatever form it takes, then we're going to see requesting. Um, and that 
in many cases is done very safely, but you end up occasionally some amount of the time with those learners who kind of fight the process. And um, uh, especially in the case of, let's say the reinforcer is escaping tasks. I think this is actually a better example. I should have led with it. Um, that might mean, you know, if we're telling you to pick up the toys and put them in a bin, for you to not escape it successfully, we have to physically facilitate your putting those toys away. We have to prompt you to do it for it to not produce the reinforcement of not having to do it. And that's where I think the biggest contrast is between this version of intervention in the enhanced choice model and, and what we historically did. Because in enhanced choice model, we, we still might want to teach a request to not have to do something. So like, can I have a break or can I not do that? Um, but we wouldn't do it through physically prompting the person to do it until they requested. Um, we would allow them to make the choice of, am, am I going to practice my request today? And therefore that's the only way I'm gonna get access to the thing, or do I wanna just step over into this other space and, and have access, if, if not to exactly that thing, but something pretty darn great. Does that help? I, I don't know. I don't. No, I think I think it does. And I mean, I and I think that just helping to kind of paint the picture and that it's been this it's a, it's a, a gradual shift where you're taking some of the things that we learned historically and applying the good parts as you move forward into a far kind of more, I'd say, emotionally supportive environment for that child where they can actually develop some of the some of the emotional skills, the reciprocity, the empowerment, the autonomy, all those things that are really important for us as adults, equally as important as a child to develop those skills, but we never really focused on. Um, I'd love to hear some of this because it's got to be hard to be able to train staff to get over some of those hurdles. I worked with uh, severe emotional behaviors um, historically, probably 22 years ago at the San Francisco State Psych Hospital. And it was different um, back then where, you know, it's it's almost like, well, they can't do that. So we have to stop them like it's that's not appropriate or they were being rude, so they can't be reinforced. And I think some of this is not taking into context of how do you shape a behavior long term versus how do you shape it immediately? Um, how do you train staff to get over their own reaction to specific behaviors? If it is escape maintained, be like, well, I failed. I let them get away with something or I let them escape the environment that they weren't supposed to. Um, where's that mindset training come in? Yeah, yeah. And also right before I answer that, I do want to just say I appreciate how you were saying there's, you know, there are these shaping processes and the what I described a minute ago for contrast is like a very, very overly simplistic version of it. And there's much more to it. So I don't want to straw man what we were doing before, but but those are some of the features that contrast. It's it's the physical guidance and the the strictness with um, you know, you're yeah, I have to be consistent. And and you're right that that has really persisted in the way educators, and I use that term broadly, that to be anybody who's trying to teach a child something. Um, so that could include a parent approach behavior change and um that is a, it is quite the mindset and it's one that i had for the longest time and i still notice myself doing it i have young children and and there i am like darn it it's because i said so so i have to and then i'll remember i don't have to and i'll say you know what i changed my mind <laughs> i know i said you had to do this and it's not worth it to me anymore <laughs> so we're going to do this other thing instead. So I'll, you know, one thing I'll do is, is share examples like that with people. But um, 
but also I'll, I'll just come out and say, I, I haven't solved this problem. Um, and so I do my best to, you know, I, I need to, if I'm working with another adult, we need a strong relationship. So through interviewing and learning about the student and learning about the teacher's perspective, um, I'm hopeful that we're establishing some trust between us um, in exchanging information and that kind of vulnerability that happens um, through sharing how you respond to problem behavior in a, in a tough situation. So there's that. There's like, let's establish the relationship and establish that I, I really do want to help you. And that is why I'm here. And I don't want to judge you. That is not why I'm here. Um, but as far as specific tactics go, I'm um, starting to think that one of the best things we can do is really invest some time in like, what do you want out of out of this process? You as the adult who's involved, um, what's going to make you feel like your best self as a teacher? And maybe that's something we can anchor our other decisions to. So if they're like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to end up in crisis with this kid every day. And it's kind of like, OK, there we have one tangible goal. It's like reduce the minutes in, in containment um, or um, I just want to I just want him to be able to work independently for 10 minutes on, you know, the Lexia reading program without, you know, somebody having to go to see the school nurse, you know, so it's like maybe we can spend some time investing, figure out what it is that's going to be really salient to the teacher as a victory. And then that can sort of drive the rest of the process. And then when things get weird. So, for example, oftentimes when I'm working with an, a teacher in a school building um, with a child who has pretty strong language skills, like fluent with conversational speech, F functional communication training, FCT, is very weird for them. That's the part where we we teach them to say, break, please, to use a simple example, and then we give them a break. And the teacher's like, they already know how to say that. And it's very hard for them to understand it all. And that's where we can bring in, hey, remember how we were talking about Alexia, and we want him to just be able to do that for 10 minutes. For us to be able to start to build his capacity to tolerate Lexia we got to begin by teaching him that his words matter and and actually setting the stage for him to use them. Because while he can produce those words, does he really ever do that when you put him in front of Alexia? No. And so we can sort of continue to keep ourselves anchored throughout the process, even when the buy-in starts to drift to, to that longer term goal. Um, so that and that can also help with some of the aspects of the procedure that seem really odd. So that communication skill teaching part to a lot of people, they're like, I can't believe that seems odd. That seems like a very necessary first step. Well, to many people, that seems odd in and of itself. So you can imagine that when I say let him just like leave and go play with his stuff, that seems even odder. Um, and and that part, you know, the good thing, uh, there's good and bad when we've gotten to the point of this treatment process, when we actually transfer or start to implement procedures within the classroom. The only teachers who are left with us at that point in the process are the ones who are up for it. And so we haven't had a big problem, um, but uh, it takes a long time to get there. And we have lost folks along the way. And I just I don't know yet what it would have taken to include that that element of the procedure for someone who is resistant. I will add one more thing because I know I've just talked for a really long time and I want to hear what you're thinking. Um, and that is just that one, I think, opportunity for helping connect this idea of choice about whether to participate and free access to reinforcement or rewards 
um, is in the, the Peace Corner. So here in Nashville, at least, many classrooms have a Peace Corner. It's part of the district social emotional learning emotional learning curriculum where there is this designated space that's nice and it has stuff in it. Um, it's not just like an unenriched break, like you can take a break, sure, but it's gonna be unpleasant for you. <laughs> um, and there are procedures through which students can access it. So I think we can really use that idea that's already pretty installed as a starting point for communicating why why this will work. And I lied, I have one other thing to add. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and if it is just that Here's another thing that I think it's is really important to remind folks when we're collaborating about this is that by teaching children, by giving them the opportunity to opt out in these various ways, they are practicing a super important life skill, which is discriminating that things are getting a little too hot and I need to change it up. And, you know, I get an email sometimes and go for a walk and mm -hmm. everybody needs to know how to notice how their body's feeling and decide I need to go somewhere else. And and that usually helps as well with the mindset. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at just naturally how we all should and could be operating throughout our day. It's if we're forced into something, you see those reactions, the fight or flight, and, and we're not able to use coping mechanisms to self-soothe or to kind of give ourselves that time to kind of decompress before making a decision. And if somebody doesn't have all the skills to make the right decision and you put them in a context where now their anxiety's up and they don't know how to respond and yet they have to give a quick response, you're going to see the not the best of them. You're going to see That's at good. times maybe even the worst of their decision making at that time. Um, because they still have to get their personal needs met. And that's what they're thinking about at that moment. And it's interesting how we don't always treat each other the same way that we would when we're intervening with somebody. And it's nice to see this blend and how it's described. Thank you for listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. We've only just scratched the surface of this captivating topic. Next week, we'll dive even deeper with expert Johanna Stobitz. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.